Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, coming to you from Casa de Quinn Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we'll bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, and interview talented local actors and directors. Today, we welcome to the show actor, director, screenwriter, and author, and our friend, Dan Estes. Dan started his theater career in a junior high school production of Boris and the Spaceman, where he played the part of Skinny. This led him to several roles throughout high school and his high school's thespian group drama club, where he served as treasurer and vice president. After high school, Dan took a hiatus of almost 20 years from the stage, but his second career started with a small role in Gypsy, which snowballed into being involved in over 75 shows, about 20 as director. Dan recently retired from a 37-plus year career with the state of Washington as a counselor, social worker, and educator, a career that culminated in teaching for the University of Washington, training new social workers for the field. Dan has adapted two movies and one book into plays, one of them Alfred Hitchcock's The Trouble with Harry, which has been produced in four states, most recently in Tampa, Florida, and he is currently working on an abridged version of Our Town by Thornton Wilder. Dan's most recent writing project is a book entitled The Trump Who Stole America, a political parody he hopes to release in October. Dan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Welcome. Glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. So we've both worked with Dan in the past, uh, me for a very short time. Yeah. Before COVID hit. <laughs> very short. <laughs> very short, Greg. I think I've known you, Dan, for four plus years since I, believe so. since I auditioned for the Grumpy Santa Claus in Christmas Story. Yeah. Um, but we've worked together in Rumors. I think that was the only play we've done together. Um, yes, where I played I Bernie. I would beg to differ because I think we were also both actors in a couple of shows. At least one yes, show. Yes, that is true. That is true. I'm thinking just um, from the director. We were Pippin. We were in Pippin together. We were in Pippin together. We were also in um, the one that Jan adapted from yes. um, the... Um, and neither one of us can remember <laughs> the name of it. Beginners the Beginner's Goodbye. goodbye. The Beginner's Goodbye. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you, producer Quinn. <laughs> for the <laughs> sake. Quinn for the save. Yes. <laughs> and of course, uh, I was really looking forward to working together with yeah. Little Shop of Horrors. I was, that was cast exciting. as Oren Scrivello, the sadistic dentist. Oh man, you yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> and then everything came falling down on top of us. That was, uh, that's we'll, true. We'll, we'll get to that a little later. So, uh, Dan, tell us what what first inspired you to take up acting. Well, uh, as I pointed out in my bio, <laughs> the very first place that play I did was in um, junior high school. It was uh, in a classroom of acting uh, speech class, basically. And uh, I, I don't think I ever really wanted to get up in front of anybody. I was actually kind of a shy kid. Uh, but I kind of found a, a passion there. And when I went on to high school, um, I just started doing everything theater. And I really fell in love with it. And um, I pointed out in my bio that I had a hiatus of about 20 years because I got a job that um, was a swing ship job. You can't do theater in a swing ship job. Now, I love the job, and it was you know, paid well, and so I stayed with that for about almost 20 years and then uh, came back to it. Um, when I moved out here, one of my friends from work said, hey, you know, they're looking for actors, and I think you'd be a great actor. <laughs> Knew nothing about my earlier career, and they said they just needed somebody, and so there was a, a role at Seastock for a little small part, and I got it, and that same year I did six, uh, six plays. <laughs> I went from one to the next to the next to the next. And it's funny how that works. I yeah. know, and I think you've experienced that. I'm sure you've probably experienced that. And you will, or have. 
<laughs> Get bitten by the bug. Yeah. So then I know you more as, I mean, obviously you said we've, you know, reminded me that we've worked together as, as actors, but I see you more in, in the director chair. Um, so what, what made you or, or inspired you to make that transition from acting over to directing? So I did a little bit of directing even in high school. We, we, we got to do that there. Um, I directed a, a play called The Unknown Soldier, and it was terrible. It was just awful. <laughs> I don't know how I got the role of being the director, but it was awful. And I did a couple other things that were probably just about that same level. But I liked being behind the scenes more than I did in front of this uh, stage. I'll, I do the stage stuff because it, it challenges me, but I love being behind the, the scenes and um, creating. Uh, if, if, for those people who have been with me, I get so excited about blocking a show and just watching the creation of it build. And I have a, a blast doing that. And um, a lot of people say to me, but don't you enjoy getting up front? And I, I say, I enjoy it, but I really enjoy watching other people do it after I told them what to do. <laughs> <laughs> that was the point that we had reached in Little Shop of Horrors yeah. was the blocking. And I think we maybe spent one night blocking together. Yeah. And some of the most fun that I had that short period we were working together was watching you watch the actors and actresses. Yeah. It just, and I've told a lot of people this since then, is the joy on your face was just, and, and that just is, it spread to the whole rest of the cast. Yeah, and I, and I, I do that a lot where I'm, I'm blocking something and I just get so excited about it. And I actually ask for apologies. I start saying, I'm so sorry, but I'm really excited about this. And, I'm really, and so I do have a lot of fun blocking and directing. And then when it's on stage, you know, a lot of directors um, have a tendency to direct and then leave. And they never see their show. Maybe they might see it the opening night or dress rehearsal when they're just gone. And I can't even imagine. I, I struggle sometimes when I have to miss a night because I just, I'm afraid I'm going to miss something. Even though I've seen it 200 times prior to that performance, I still want to see it. Do you think any one or any, any two performances are ever exactly alike? No. As an actor, never. I never feel like I'm yeah. doing it the same way twice. No, for sure. <laughs> but it's always, it, 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 and what I really like, and what I really enjoy is watching it get better. It's just, it's just like all of a sudden, um, you know, opening night, there's all that tension and nervousness and they do a fantastic job and everybody's just excited about that. You hope they do a fantastic job. <laughs> but then in the end, you know, the next weekend they come back and then they've just had a, enough time to really just let that sink in and that character. I, I still remember a time when I was doing, um, I was doing um, sound, sound of Music and I played the, the friend of the captain. And I remember there was a point in about the third weekend where I said, oh my gosh, I'm really here trying to save their lives at the end. Even though I've been kind of a schmuck most of the time, I'm here trying to stall these people and I got to make that. And it was just such a, uh, it felt so good to be able to feel, figure that out. And yeah, I wish I'd figured out earlier, of course, <laughs> but it's just, you know, you, it's just a good thing then. Yeah. Oh. So what drew you first to, to writing plays or, or adapting plays? So... Um, Greg is going to think that I'm talking about him, but I'm not talking about him because we had this exact same conversation about two years ago. Mm -hmm. But when I did, um, I did a show called uh, The Trouble with Harry. And it's a movie based, uh, it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And um, I kept watching, I, sat the, I saw the movie a couple times and I said, 
that would be a great play. I just kept saying that. So I had a friend over, not Greg, but Greg said the same thing to me later. <laughs> and this friend said, I said, hey, have you ever seen this movie? Put it on. We watched it. And in the entire, during the entire movie, I would stop it and say, now, if I was to do this on stage, this is how I do it. And then we'd watch some more. And finally, at the very end, he just looked at me and said, well, then write the play. <laughs> and that's how it got started. And I started writing it and it went from there. And it's just, uh, it's, it's taken, you know, the, the, the play is taken on a life of its own. I mean, um, being performed in other states. I mean, so how does, how does that then happen? How, talk me through the process of, of getting, first of all, getting rights. Because yeah. obviously you had to go out and get rights. And then to get other theaters to perform it. So I, I, I back in, I think, I want to say 2007, I uh, applied for a copyright. I applied through a legal... Um, company that can help you do that and i paid like three four hundred dollars for that i have since found out <laughs> that it is much faster to do it on your own through the copyright office and it cost about 35 bucks <laughs> <laughs> so i learned from my error um two years later um i they told me it was going to take about two years and two years later i finally got a letter from them saying are you still wanting to do this and i said yes and then about a month after that i got a letter from the copyright office Giving a thing, and I was thinking that they were going to say, "Well, we have some concerns because it's owned by somebody else." And they just and and I acknowledged that in my copyright, and they said, "Yeah, you can have it. It's yours." And it was like, like that one cost me three hundred dollars. But when I did my next one, I just went through the copyright office and paid thirty-five bucks. And two or three weeks later, they sent it to me. And then did you solicit that out to other theater groups, or it's or kind of word? So get what around? happened was word got around. Um, people, other people like Greg. But out of the state, not in the state, I mean. Um, other people had the same idea, saying, that would make a good play. And so they start looking it up, and all of a sudden, our little theater, because we had performed it, it showed that there was somebody there that had written it. <laughs> and so people started contacting them, and I got my first request out of Bend, Oregon, and they performed it there. And then I got another one in, uh, I got to think about it, Detroit, Michigan. It was just north of there, kind of near Flint. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, um, and then um, I got one from um, I got one from Finland. They wanted to do it in Finland. Uh, they never actually did do it in Finland, but um, that I know of, unless they did it without me knowing. But pretty much, I was giving it away free. I would tell people as long as you know they would you know promote it. I didn't care, you know. So, uh, what other movies and and book? You said there's also a book that you've adapted. Yeah. So the the other movie I did um, is um, a big hand with a big hand for a little lady, and it's a great cowboy western that uh, starred um, Henry Fonda and um, Jane Wyman and a couple other people that most people would know. They're just real character actors. Um, and I've adapted that one. I've done a read-through of that. I have not actually had the performance of that. I believe I, I really feel there's a couple characters I want to um, uh, tweak and make a little bit better. Um, uh, they would, that would make the show a little bit better on stage. Um, and then I did do a book. I, I'm going to avoid talking about the book a little bit only because I don't have permission from the author and I've actually had contact with that author. And so they have told me no, to know that I can do it on stage, but I have written the play. Um, <laughs> and, and that was some years back. I might recontact him and try to get that one going. But. So obviously when you are taking something, a large project like a movie and adapting it down to the small stage, how much liberty can you take with the characters? Like you said, you wanted to flesh a couple of characters out in the right. Western. How much, how much tweaking can you do uh, without really 
changing it into an entirely different product. So the technically, technically the, the way I get the copyright is, the copyright law says, if you take a product and you change it into a new product, you, you, can, you can do that as long as, you're, as long as there's enough of a change. Mm. So making a movie into a play is a change, and that's, and that's enough of a change. So I can actually do anything I want with the characters. I could make it any way I wanted to and really uh, distort it. I like the movie, that movie, and I just felt like there's a couple of little characters that would be funnier if they, if they were more like, um, there's a little kid in it that, who doesn't have very many lines, and I wanted to give him more lines and that type of stuff. So. But it's, it's, a, it's, a fun product, uh, it's a fun process. Well, tell us a little bit about your work on, on Our Town and, and your new book, The Trump Who Stole America. Okay. Um, the first, um, I've been working on Our Town and abbreviating it. I'm here to tell you that one of my favorite plays is Our Town, and most people go, what? <laughs> Our Town, really? Because most people have seen, <clears throat> no offense, but most people have seen either a junior high or a high school production of it, and it is a very long story, um, and if it's not done really well, it can be uh, dry. And tiresome. And, uh, and tiresome and, <laughs> and long. depressing. And depressing, <laughs> and depressing. Um, but I just think it has such a message for people to say. I, I, I believe the message is, is that you know, we're only here for a short period of time, and we should not spend our time wasting it away. And I think sometimes I even waste my life away. Sometimes I think, oh, I, I need to get out more and, and be with my friends and stuff like that. And then there's times when I just want to be home by myself. And so um, anyways, um, what I did was I said, you know, there's a lot of extra um, words in there that I felt like we could pull out and still have a good product. And so I've reduced it to probably about half of what it was. Mm. And still I have a, a I, I feel a pretty good um, Thornton Wilder play. Um, I don't, well, I don't, um, I, I think he wrote fantastic and all this stuff is great, but the problem of it is, is we're in such a fast paced world that people could, can, just can't sit still for that much. And I just felt like, you know, I, I, I kind of ran into a little bit of a roadblock with that because I've contacted and I've, I've actually done some research and um, Thornton Wilder still owns the copyright to that. So I, I, I don't know if me abridging it makes it um, enough for the copyright people. They might say, no, that's still his work because you're using all his lines. Which goes back to your question about how much can you change yeah, or, or should right, you change? Yeah. yeah. I could, you know, yeah. So it's, it's kind of a fine line. And again, I've, I've done um, um, The Trouble with Harry and it's been produced in uh, four states now. Um, and I have not had any problem with that. But at any time, somebody could come and say, hey, that's ours, and then we could, and anybody can sue anybody in these days. So, I mean, somebody could sue me and say, hey, and we and it could get in litigation, and I couldn't, you know. But I made no money on it, so it's really nice. I can easily say, yeah, you can have everything I earned off of it. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so you're known for comedies, directing comedies yes. locally. What drew you to, and I'm, I'm a Hitchcock fan, but I haven't seen that particular film. Is it is it a little darker? I, I've seen that it, there are some comedic aspects to the film, but what drew you to maybe a little darker material? It actually was not well accepted by the community, especially Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock people, because it was a comedy more mm. than a suspense. Um, it just, I thought it was very funny about a dead body whose people are, several people think they killed, and nobody knows who killed this guy, and they're trying to bury it, and every time they bury it, they realize they have to unbury it. So in, in the movie and in my play, he's buried six or seven times, and then brought back up to be cleaned up and <laughs> try to figure out what they can do, and then he's buried again. It's, it's 
I think, quite humorous and um, kind of a, a little bit of dark humor, but not it's not too dark. <laughs> Dead bodies coming back to life, kind of like the political process we're currently seeing oh. unfold out there. So <laughs> we took a rabbit trail, but we, we definitely want to hear more about The Trump Who Stole Murica. Murica, yeah. It's the, the Trump Who Stole Murica is a book I uh, had the idea of about a year and a half ago. And of course, I was working at that time. And then when I ended up retiring, I said, I really should start doing something about that. Well, three months ago, <laughs> I finally started doing something about that. And... Um, I basically uh, borrowed the idea from the grump, the grump, the, the Grinch who stole Christmas, um, and I just kind of did some maneuvering, and I made a parody of the Trump who stole America. So it's in Dr. Seuss style, style, rhyming yes. style, and instead of the who's, uh, they're the they's, all the they's down in Dayville. <laughs> Greg's read it. I've read it. it it's hilarious. It is a funny and a quick read. A quick our, read. And our associate producer, Quinn, has read it yeah. as well. Yeah, it would make a great, great audio book. Yeah, well. I, th- I think you might need to get it illustrated, too. Yeah. I was thinking um, Samuel Jackson as a reader or, or maybe, um, yeah, yeah, Samuel Jackson. I think I'll go with that one. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so what has been your, with, with COVID and the shutdown and 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 that what has been your biggest challenge theatrically and what are you looking forward to um when things open up again well matt made a uh, statement at the beginning and just the idea that he and i were ready to do um, little shop of horrors and that got canceled and we probably were in maybe the fourth of Fourth week of yeah, I think at least, at least a month in. Yeah, a month yeah, in there was definitely momentum. So I mean, we were yeah, and it was looking like we were going to have a good production. We had a great cast, mm-hmm. and um, and then the the idea was well maybe we can hold off until this time and then this time and then finally it was like we can't hold off any longer. We got to just call it Nick's, and that's a really hard thing. Um, I think the thing I miss the most is the social aspect, and I, it's it's really kind of weird. Sometimes when you're in a show, you kind of are tired and. I, I always remembered going to rehearsals when I was tired, thinking, I just, I've been working all day, I'm so exhausted. And then the minute I step into the theater, there's just life. And people are excited to see you and happy to see you, and people are joking, and you're going to be there for three or four hours, but you've but you're got energy all of a sudden. You have this uh, fantastic energy. And that's kind of gone, um, not to be able to see people and have that... Um, Kinship. The, the funny thing is, I think the minute we're all back together, it's going to be the same thing. We, we just, um, I, I know there's times when I haven't done a show with somebody for two or three years, and I see them, it's like I, I, haven't, I haven't, we don't miss a beat. We're back to being the best of friends and um, doing the same old pranksters and stuff like that. So it's or or for the first time. Yeah. It, it's, you have just you, you oh. immediate rapport with someone. Yes. I mean, I felt that working with you yeah. when I first worked, you know, stepped on stage with Greg. It's like, these it's are my fun. people here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and community theater is so, I, I, I will say this about Kitsap County, it is so friendly amongst the theater groups, in my opinion. Um, I've been in other areas where there's like uh, sometimes contention between theaters, like you can't act over there if you're acting over here type thing. And that's just never seemed to be a thing in, in Kitsap County, so. I think we can all identify with all those sentiments. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So uh, when we come back, we'll have our segment uh, called In the Mix, where we're going to brew up a cocktail related to Dan and some of the things he's been working on. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back.
And now it's time for a segment that we like to call In the Mix, where our resident mixologist, Mr. Heilman of Heilman and Haver, will be preparing a special cocktail in honor of our guest, Dan Estes, and one of his favorite playwrights, Neil Simon. Greg, what are we enjoying tonight? Well, tonight, well, first of all, Dan has made a name for himself directing comedies and specifically Neil Simon comedies, things of that ilk. Um, having started one uh, myself, Rumors, thoroughly enjoyable experience, I should say, and a, and a wonderful play. But in honor of the Neil Simon experience, tonight we're drinking The Sweet Charity. And if you want to make this at home and, and kind of drink along to this, um, this is two ounces of rosé wine, a uh, half ounce of elderflower liqueur, uh, a little bit of soda water, and about four to six raspberries in a wine glass. So if it sounds good to you, it, it is good. I think uh, we can all agree on that. Take our word for it. a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> cheers, gentlemen. Cheers to our guest and cheers to Mr. Simon. So, Dan, what first drew you to Neil Simon plays? Um, I, I think I would start off by saying I am drawn to comedy. I enjoy comedy a lot. Um, I enjoy watching it get on the stage. and um, just. I think one of the best parts about comedy is that not only do I get to direct, but I get to co collaborate with people. Um, I, I think that I'm funny. But I think other people are really funny, <laughs> and I get with people. And um, there's nothing, um, nothing more fun than being at a rehearsal where we're laughing till the very end. And that's what seems to happen when I do comedies. I do like the serious play, like uh, we talked about earlier. I'm working on uh, an abridged version of Bartown, but I do that because I I think it helps me emotionally, and it, I can feel that but the but working with people on comedy is my my thing and neil simon it, it was kind of a really of a fluke i picked four i think four neil simons in a row <laughs> every year i did a neil simon and didn't even realize i was doing it um i just didn't even think about it and then all of a sudden yeah i do like neil simon he's got some good stuff there so what's your favorite show um neil simon or just it, any neil simon and neil why simon? is it rumors and why <laughs> yeah. I think actually of Neil Simon's plays, I think Rumors is one of my... Um, actually, no, I'm sorry. Rumors is my second favorite. I think Fools is such a fun play, and it's it's such a simple um, simple uh, theme to it or the idea behind it. And it's just I just love that. So, But I'll give Rumors a good high five for the second place. How about you, Greg? As far as Neil oh, Simon. wow. Um, I have a special place for the odd couple, I think. You know, I hadn't seen the play... Um, I grew up with the show, the television show, um, but I think the first time I saw the play was when you directed it a few years ago, Dan, and it's uh, it's just it's really entertaining. I mean, it's it it's the interaction, and that's the great thing I think about the Neil Simon plays that that I've seen that the the ensemble interaction, not just between you know Felix and Oscar in The Odd Couple, but the poker buddies and. You know, in, in rumors, the there's everybody in this in this house together, and just this this interaction that's just crazy and and really out there. It's just it's it's super entertaining and just really funny. To add to that, I, it's like each character he develops is an is is their own story, mm -hmm. and you get to see it as it plays out. And there were four couples in that play, rumors, and each one of them 
had highlights that just made the made if they were not in the show it would the show would just fall apart i just i think neil simon had built great characters i so, think we would make a great odd couple potentially yeah oh, felix yeah. and oscar oh yeah it's on my which, bucket list which it is my absolute you? oscar i'm a walter I'd have, be, I'd have to be felix but walter Matthau is yeah. uh, a god <laughs> yeah. so I, start, I, I saw them actually the first minor introduction to the odd couple was the odd couple two which oh. is was made actually i think in the late 90s uh and you know walter Matthau and lemon uh reprising their roles and they're a lot older and mm-hmm. it's their their children are getting married and they set off on a road trip and it is one of the just gut-busting funniest I movie i've ever seen have not seen that it is hilarious there, i will loan you my copy <laughs> there is a female version of it which i saw in bremerton um at a little theater that has since closed down um and it was fantastic and so um i don't know if you remember in the odd couple there are two girls from upstairs yes. in this one there are two guys from upstairs <laughs> and it's it's really well done and so that's a that's a good one i was lucky enough to get to see your show your version of it oh, good. Um, on my birthday a couple oh. years ago so that was a that was a real treat and that cast was just top notch yeah, absolutely so from a directing perspective just uh when you're directing a show is there any specific and this is a question we asked um, our guest last time, Jeffrey Bassett, uh, something that at a granular level in a play makes you feel fulfilled or, or proud. Because I mean, there's the the grand scale of, hey, I'm proud that this show has come together and um, it's gone off and the, the, the cast is wonderful and I feel proud about that. But is there any, as a director, is there anything that you can think of that makes you just proud or sit back and just, you get delight from um i think that um and so since both of you are in theater you know there usually there are notes at the end of a rehearsal and um you know you give your notes and then the people come back and then just to see them incorporate some of those ideas into their stuff and then themselves building their own character from that i mean i i think part of it's my input but also part of it watching them develop their own character i just love that i I, I'm getting chills when I talk about it because I'm kind of silly in that way. I just love watching people. Uh, I can watch a movie three or four times because I, I love watching them with their characters. I know they're not that person, but it's so cool to watch them in that character role. So. And so when, when you're directing, do you feel like you, um, do you see your role as really actively helping to shape the character or do you like to give... Again, we didn't get a lot of ch- opportunity to work together. Right. Um, and we were working with Becca as well at that time, and she was doing some of the you know, choreography, et cetera. And so you and I didn't get to work together a whole lot, but do you do you give the, the, the actors a lot of leeway to build their own and create their own character? I, I think I do. I, and, I, you know, you, could, you should always ask the other actors when they're out there. But I think I, there's something I'm looking for, but at the same time, I might find it, just by something they're doing and not by what maybe what I'm looking for is not the right thing. I know there's been times when I've been on stage and I'm thinking, this is what I want. And then somebody else comes in and does it a different way. And that in and of itself, I go, okay, I had a great idea, but yours is even better. Yours is working and we're going to keep it that way. So it's a little bit of both. I mean, I, I, I think I want to help people get to the character that I think they are should be, but then eventually they may get to a character that's, even far beyond what I, my expectations. So, and that's what I hope for. All right. Well, we're going to finish up on uh, enjoying these cocktails uh, and all of the ingredients, uh, the how to uh, for this cocktail is going to be in the description of the show. So you guys can 
enjoy it along with us and uh, share it with a friend. Coming up next in our uh, In the News segment, we're going to look at a recent court case, the United States versus Paramount. And Greg is going to uh, talk to us a little bit about the legal and cinematic ramifications of this new court decision. So stick with us and we'll be right back on Heilman and Haber. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver and the In the News section. Tonight we're going to discuss something that's been in the headlines recently, but in the context of a court ruling that was le- leveraged 40, 50 years ago. So we're going to talk about the U.S. versus Paramount and a little bit of history. And we're going back to the old Hollywood studio system when studios would sign actors to, to them or to contracts and basically own the creative rights to them and would only lend them to other studios uh, by way of some financial gain. And they did any number of other practices that uh, institutionalized the powers of the individual studios. One of these was related to vertical integration, whereby the studios producing films also owned the distribution channels. In fact, by 1945, the major studios owned 17% of the theaters in the country, which led them to be able to bully other smaller and independent theaters into things like block booking, which is the process of forcing a theater to purchase accompanying films in order to be able to show an A-level picture. Think of a studio selling Gone with the Wind to a a, a theater but forcing them to also purchase two or three other B films uh, to, to fill out the, the bill just so that they could have the ability to show Gone with the Wind. So that's just one of the oligopolist practices that they, um, they did back uh, in, in the old studio system. So this, was, uh, this led to a number of court cases, the largest being filed in 1938 by the Department of Justice against all of the major studios but Paramount, being the largest studio of the time, was the one that was named as the primary defendant in that case. The case made it to the Supreme Court, where it was ruled that, among other things, major studios had to divest their theaters, in short, making it illegal for production studios to own the distribution chain. Of note, while the Paramount decrees stood, the Department of Justice never applied them to other media, such as television or, more recently, streaming. And then finally, on August 7, 2020, the Department of Justice was granted a two-year sunsetting of the decrees. So by 2022, all of the provisions laid out in the court case will be, in fact, nullified. So there's a lot lot to digest here, but suffice it to say that in 2022, movie studios will once again have kind of a carte blanche when it comes to distribution and related practices. So given how hard the entertainment industry has been hit by COVID, the question is, do we think the studios will continue to play nice as they have been, or is it going to be every Howard Hughes for himself? Well, it's interesting that this kind of comes at the same time that we have this release of Mulan on Disney Plus for 30 bucks over the the monthly fee for Disney Plus and people some people are really embracing this model and other people's are people are really I mean incensed reading some of the responses. I mean, uh, all kinds of curse words about 30 bucks. I mean, how, how can you, how dare you uh, charge us extra? All these other films are, are uh, you know, included in the package. But is this the new model? And is it an acceptable replacement for the old model of releasing to the theater? And then maybe it goes to the Academy for an award. I mean, we, we've got that structure in place for so many years that uh, this is a real change in the dynamic uh, as consumers, and 
I think this is the way things are going to go. If you look at what Netflix did with The Irishman, they released it, I think, a month early uh, in a few select theaters before they launched it to Netflix. And, well, I just waited for Netflix. You know, and I don't, 30 bucks for Mulan, it's going to cost me over 100 to take my family of five to see this film on the big screen. Others are saying, well, but what's the fun of that? I have a 60-inch television, and I want to see it, you know, in all its glory. How does this court case impact our options as consumers? Well, one thing in the context of the court case, you would bring up Mulan. So um, there were some calculations made based on number of Disney Plus subscribers and the percentage of those who went ahead and paid the $30. And I think the calculations came out that the opening weekend would have been equivalent to a $260 million opening. Now, keep in mind, now, first of all, that would have been second to, I think it was Avengers Infinity War. Right. Um, but this is one that they didn't have to share with the theaters. Right. It's, it's purely revenue with just the overhead of running Disney+. Plus. So the, the, the gross and the revenue is not that much of a difference. So we're talking about pure profit here. So in, in a new model, when we're looking at, at studios coming out of COVID and, and being in a recovery mode for, I don't know how many years at this point, given that they're going to have this, this carte blanche, will they continue to, as I met, asked before, play nice? Or are they going to, or do you think they'll try to do some of these things to try to boost their, um, boost their, uh, their revenue and, and, you know, small theaters go by the way or, or however it is. So. so is that what you're thinking? Are you thinking that the theater is a bygone experience right now? I mean, boy, I hope is, not. Is that where we're headed to? And that, I, I that, mean, I like the theater, but I, I hear what you were saying too, Matt. I mean, and to me, $30 at first you hear it and you think, oh, that's a lot of money. But then it's like, well, you're right. If I'd gone to the movies, even as a single person going to the movies, Okay, maybe I have a date, but anyways, I mean, we're still we're talking. It's going to cost me at least thirty bucks, forty bucks, and like you say, with a family of four, boom, it's going to be in the hundreds. Well, for for me, the the movie going to the movies is is an experience. Yeah, and and there's nothing that really can replace that. Right. Um, as convenient as it might be to watch something streaming, um, it just you, you it's well we're dealing with it right now. We all miss that experience of going to the show, mm -hmm. whether it's on stage yep. or screen, and. What I'm afraid of, on the one hand, is that this is going to have a real dampening effect on new artists, new directors, new production companies coming in and making art. On the other hand, the idea of Disney making a film, owning the theater that it's shown in, deciding on when the release date is on streaming, or doing it all simultaneously, and I start thinking... Would that allow us as consumers to see more Disney products on a large screen? Will everything they release eventually make it to the large screen if they own the entire production line, essentially? Right. And that kind of excites me because, um, you know, if you go on Netflix, and say Netflix starts buying their own theaters or building their own theaters, well, how many of those Netflix originals or Amazon originals, for that matter, would be a lot of fun to see on the big screen? And you've never had that opportunity up to this point. So I don't know if it's necessarily oh. negative. I, I got to play devil's advocate on that one. It's, it's a, so, go ahead, well, Dan. I was just going to say, is, is uh, the question is, can they both 
can you have both? Right. And that's the big question. Right. And, and I, there's a part of me that I was just, just, when you said that with Netflix, I'm thinking, gosh, uh, Stranger Things would be kind of cool on the big screen or yeah. things like that. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, well, more, can you have series released on the yeah, big screen? Yeah. I mean, it's, it opens up a whole, you know, a range of options. It, it takes us consumers. back. It takes us back, honestly. We talked about the, 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 um, the studio system back to the, the Saturday matinees. Where, yes. you, where you'd run a serial every every Saturday. That's right. You know, which would be, uh, I, I think, a nice diversion. But I think it, I think sometimes it comes down to choice too. There's there's a lot who like to have the choice to stay home and watch a movie. I think Mulan. I can't think of any other film that was released because they did do a limited theatrical run at the same time. Given that you know, of course, not a lot of theaters were open, but that was their official theatrical release date. I don't believe that. I know of any other film that was released to streaming or any other broadcast medium at the same time has been released in theaters. But but you made the point that they made two hundred sixty million dollars, and 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 it was singularly theirs. It wasn't yeah. shared with anybody. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good reason for them to think, oh, this is this is a good uh, model. We should be and, emulating. And, yeah, and the question. I mean, so, you know, when 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 they had the case. We had, it was in the days of you know the Robert Barons, right? So you had the Cecil B. DeMille's and the Howard right. Hughes's, just like you had the railroad tycoons and the steel tycoons. And is, is business different enough these days that we can trust some of these larger studios to play nicer? That they're not going to start going because it's I think it's one thing where we where they own the, the theaters, but then if they go and try to squash the other theaters in the name of competition. I think that's where we start to get into this, this area where what led to the the court cases before. Are you thinking that uh, Disney would say these are only going to be played in our theaters yes. that we own? That's the fear. Okay. That's okay. the fear. And it's it's possible. And, uh, again, with with COVID and the quarantine still being in place, I mean we're in the midst of it still. We don't have an mm-hmm. end date. Right. And another way to look at this might be this this may be the only way that local theaters stay in business is if they sell to a larger conglomerate or if a net an amazon comes in and buys you know we have the local the galaxy theaters it's a it's mm-hmm. a smaller family of theaters it's you know 20 or so theaters um you have local places like the roxy etc that show second runs and documentaries right. etc so it may not impact them as much but i think the fear is that those types of places would just be automatically shuttered when in fact Perhaps someone like an Amazon, who's also building their presence locally uh, in a significant way, come in and say, hey, we're going to purchase this theater. We're going to keep all your employees here. And maybe this is the way that movie theaters survive the pandemic because much longer, I don't know how they're going to keep their, I don't know how they're going to reopen. I just don't see a lot of local theaters. That's that's the fear, actually, really. Right. That we would lose that part of the experience. I don't think that, I don't know about you guys, but I don't think that the viewing at home, the convenience will ever replace. I mean, it's it's like even, Greg and I have done a couple of Zoom shows, a couple of Zoom plays. We did War of the Worlds. We did Glengarry Glen Ross with some friends, and it was a blast. You know, we did a live read, and we all got together. We dressed up. We did, you know, costumes and everything. But it just doesn't take the place of treading the right. boards. And right. I think that that's kind of a similar comparison. It's sitting at home on my 60-inch is just not the same experience. And that's what you're paying for, yeah, 30 and, bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it is. And I, and I said from day one, I mean, with, with, speaking about Mulan, if Mulan was released in, in IMAX or you know, even just a, another large screen theater, I, I would much prefer to, to see it there. The, the, the vistas, the, the uh, oh, yeah. uh, cinematography. And there's a lot of films that are 
built for, I mean, most films are built for large screens. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the other films that you'll see on Netflix are built for the smaller, smaller screens. So I don't know. It, it's, it's kind of an unknown. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's the, the nice thing about having this discussion is we, we can kind of, you and know, this, this is something we'll probably return to as well. And it's, it's fun to get Dan's take. And, and, and as we, as we see this unfold, um, we plan to reach out to um, the CEO of Galaxy. Uh, and uh, some other local theaters and get some of their reaction well, that's good if possible because it will impact them. So that'll be something we, we kind of keep our eye on, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's a, that's a question I'd like to hear from uh, from you out there in, uh, in, in listener land. Um, given the, the, this overturning of the Paramount Decrees and, and Mulan, what, um, do you like the choice? Do you like the choice of having... Uh, the ability to either stream or go to the theater. Do you will you still go to a theater to see film if that choice is is available? So I mean, will it change how you go and and see film? So there's a lot of questions. Um, you can email us Highland and Haver at gmail.com. Hit us up on the Facebook page or the or the podcast page. Links will be um, posted along with the show, and I would love to hear from you. Yeah, we'll stay on top of this one. And uh, thanks, Greg, for doing so much research on this. It's a it's a convoluted, uh, multifaceted issue, and it it does impact all of us, especially now that we're homebound. Oh, so. for sure. All right, coming up next, we have our curtain call. We're going to ask Dan some fun questions to wrap up uh, the show tonight, and uh, we will be right back with more on Heilman and Haver. And welcome back to Heilman and Haver. And uh, with us tonight is our guest, uh, director, actor, writer, screenwriter, Dan Estes. And it's time for our curtain call segment, our last segment of the evening uh, or morning or midday, whatever time you're listening to this podcast, because uh, you know what? With modern technology, you can listen whenever you'd like. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and uh, soon Amazon Podcasts. So we're very excited. We're glad you're tuning in. And uh, please tell friends and, uh, and follow us uh, wherever you uh, tune into your podcast. Dan, we're glad you're with us. We've had a lot of fun tonight. And um, we have a few just rapid-fire fun questions for you. And uh, we're going to get started here. So what is the last thing that you do before you step out on stage or the curtain goes up? you have any rituals? I, I panic. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't that's, we all? <laughs> that's usually the last thing. If, uh, if I'm acting, I am running through my lines very quickly and hoping I have them all down and that doesn't always happen. But um, uh, no, I think um, I'm taking a deep breath. I usually take a deep breath. I try to relax myself. Um, when I'm directing, I'm, I pretty much try to throw it out to my crew and let them carry the ball. I don't like having that responsibility. I like just to sit back and watch. So... Um, but if I but if I am acting, I'm usually backstage, trying to relax and calm myself down because I do get very nervous getting on stage, and people always say you look so calm, and I go, yeah, I'm not. That's why it's acting. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's acting. <laughs> All right. So if you could direct one person, alive or dead, who would you most like to work with, and why is it George Clooney? No, I'm, just, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding, but seriously, uh, Matt. <laughs> yeah, we never got the chance because we never got the chance. Um, and, and seriously, I. I I, I would think I would be too afraid to work with some big famous names. I mean, I'd like to be around them and I'd like to learn from them, but um, I would. I just like working with my friends. And um, since I haven't worked with Matt yet, 
I'm looking forward to the day we get to. We're going to keep our fingers crossed. That happens very yeah, soon. Yeah. If someone was going to make a, a, a movie of your life, Dan Estes, who would you like to play you? I have said this many times. Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I am the sorry. The greatest voice in Hollywood. Just the greatest voice, yes. <laughs> you know, he'd also be a great narrator for How Trump Stole America. Oh, that was another one I thought right? of. Right? Yeah. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your Thank time. You. We've, we've learned a lot. We've had a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, it's been great blast. having you. And uh, we've, uh, we've got some thoughts uh, real quick before we close on local theater and just some of the struggles that local theater is facing. Greg, you want to take it? Sure. Thanks, Matt. So, yeah, so Dan, you've been heavily involved in WWCA, and I've probably done most of the shows I've done at WWCA. And they, as well as all the other local theaters, are obviously struggling. Um, it's, it's been a really challenging time for local theaters and all local businesses. We asked just our, our listeners to go take some time, maybe, maybe look at the websites, Facebook pages of some of your local theaters, see if there's ways that you can help them while they're actually not putting on shows, whether it's gift cards or merchandise or, or something else, or just donations. Um, anything would help. I want to, uh, hoping, I think we're all hoping that when, when we're able to get back to kind of a, a new sense of normalcy that, we can just jump right in and go see some live theater and, and some more shows and, and act and, and work together with our friends um, again. WWCA, uh, for those who are not familiar, uh, Western Washington Center for the Arts is located uh, down on Bay Street in Port Orchard, 521 Bay Street. And uh, it's a place near and dear to all of our hearts. Uh, it was uh, where Dan and I were supposed to work together on on Little Shop of Horrors and where, and where Greg has done several shows and uh, where a lot of our, our friends uh, and, and fellow thespians uh, uh, work and enjoy community theater. And it's, it's one of the few places in our community that you can see local theater. And they need our support. Uh, and uh, one way you can support them is actually going to be tomorrow, Saturday, um, October 3rd. They are going to be having a pandemic sale. Uh, they have a lot of fun items. They have set pieces, furniture, kitchenware, fabric, patterns, costumes, and, and Halloween items on sale. So if you're looking for a Halloween costume, uh, uh, come down Saturday, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Again, 521 Bay Street in Port Orchard. Uh, it's just a great way to come down, interact with uh, other folks, uh, other theater lovers in your community, and uh, support local theater. So get your masks. Come on down, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. down at WWCA and uh, help keep a, a, an amazing local theater afloat. Dan, again, thank you. We've, we've had a great time. We appreciate you coming and joining us. Thanks to our associate producer, Quinn Heilman. So coming up on our next episode, October 16th, we are going to welcome actor Adrian DeGroote, who is going to share his expertise on dialects and accents. Until then, join the conversation on Facebook, and please email, email us with thoughts and comments at Heilman and Haver at gmail.com you can find us on itunes spotify and youtube and if you enjoy the show make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend and don't forget to join us october 16th so until the footlights come up again thanks for supporting local theater and for joining us once again on heilman and haver